Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, here we are again as people in need, and yet you have provided our need, not only as we see in the text for uh, the act of discipleship, but Lord, for salvation for sanctification, for glorification, for all of that. It's in your word. So make us eager listeners today so that we can be willing servants for you uh, as we leave this place. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Have you ever met uh, anyone in your life who, who their life seemed to be consumed by a singular commitment? My wife and I have watched a handful of documentaries of a, a climber named Alex Honnold, and he's a man who free climbs some of the most dangerous rock faces in the world, and he does so because there's a call of the mountains that consumes him. He says, for me, climbing is like breathing. It's something I have to do to feel alive. I can't imagine my life without it. His girlfriend affirms this when she says that Alex is so focused on climbing, he can be pretty oblivious to everything else going on around him. Sometimes I feel like I'm dating a rock. It's all he ever thinks about. John Muir, the explorer and poet, once said that the mountains are calling and I must go. And what he poetically stated, uh, Honnold, uh, perfectly applies. According to Muir, there is in the mountains an obligation, an imperative. Those of us who live in Missoula, we know this. And his point is that when you hear it, you must respond to it. There's an obligation. And as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been teaching us how we ought to respond in our lives and to our times while we wait for Jesus' second coming. Waiting is often hard for us because it takes work. Out of boredom, we often fill our time. Out of frustration, we often drift away from our purpose. And out of ignorance, we sometimes just sit and accomplish Nothing, but Jesus is holding up for us how we ought to fill our time. That is how we are to be consumed during this season. Last week, he held out for us on Easter Sunday, the beautiful mountain of grace. He showed us that the summit of heaven is greater than the summit of our whole earth that we have held out for us, the pleasure of the father and the reward of the son. To put it another way, heaven itself is captivating. But what Jesus is gonna show us today is that This reward held out for God's faithful in heaven comes with a moral obligation. It's not only to be enjoyed, but it's to be obeyed. Our life is to be put in submission to this. The mountains call some, but Christ calls all. Jesus calls us in this day and time to not simply be spectators or voyeurs of the kingdom, but to be faithful, active servants inside of it. For Honnold... To not live in service of the mountain was to waste his life. But for you and for me, to not live ourselves in service of Jesus is not merely to have a wasted life, but it's to suffer a fate far worse in eternal punishment in hell. And what we're going to see this morning is this simple truth. If you've ever wondered what your purpose in life is, here today we see it. And that is that Jesus shows us God's will for our life, and we are held responsible to participate in it. Jesus reveals God's will for your life and you are responsible to participate in it. Jesus is calling and we must go. And what we're going to look at today is we'll see this in three parts in Luke chapter 12. First, we're going to examine the master's purpose. Then we're going to see the servant's perversion. 
And lastly, we'll see a serious warning. And so Jesus is speaking in a parable here in this text. But this parable comes on the response of Peter asking a question about another parable Jesus just gave. We looked at this last week. It was a story of servants waiting for the bridegroom to come. It's a story of potential loss. But more than that, it's a story of gain, of immense reward that's held out for the faithful servant, the one who is found ready and waiting. And Peter's question is, are these rewards for us as your apostles or does it, everyone get this reward? Who gains to benefit? Who should be the servant who is anxiously found awake in eager anticipation of this day? And this is where Jesus does the thing that Jesus loves to do. He answers the question by not answering the question. Peter says, who is this for? And if you notice Jesus' response in your Bibles, he says, who is the faithful and wise manager? And that's his answer. Who gets all the reward? Who needs to be warned? Who should stay awake? Whoever wants to be faithful and wise workers. But what we see in this text is that the wisdom of the manager is not in some specific skill. It's actually in his wisdom to understand the call and purpose of his job given to him by the master. He needs to be wise about what it is he should be doing. And this is our first point today. This is where we see in Jesus' parable the master's purpose. And Jesus is alluding to something that you may have familiarity with if you grew up in the church and read this kind of literature, but uh, it might seem odd to you. But it was rooted in the cultural societies of the day, and it was very common to have a master, and that was the owner of the home. And inside the home of the master lived not only his family, but many servants. And there were servants who were managers. These managers ran the household specifically when the master was gone. And when this happened and the master left, he would go to one of his servants, he would go to a manager, and that manager was told what to do, what the expectations were, and he was held responsible to make sure that all the other servants knew these expectations and lived in accordance to them. I have four kids, my oldest is just 10, and someday I hope to get to that wonderful stage where you have kids old enough to babysit other kids. And maybe you've been there, maybe you know it, And you get to say, as a parent, pizza's in the freezer, bedtime's at eight, call me if you have any questions. He is still a child, your child, but he's also been entrusted to steward something. That's very similar to what's being uh, put on display here. It is a servant, just as any other servant is a servant, but there's a servant who's being entrusted specifically with what? With a purpose. It's being communicated to him. And here Jesus is teaching us not simply about ancient Near East cultural customs. He's talking about our relationship to him. Jesus is the master of the house. If you made it by your word, you own it. Rule of thumb, abide by it. If you could speak existence, he owns whatever exists. But then Jesus being Lord of it, what does he do? He sets his creation to be stewarded by faithful managers. He places managers over it. These managers were not only given Jesus' word and his wish, right, that purpose and that intent, but if you notice in the text, they're also given his property and his possessions. They are stewards. Stewards not only of the master's property, but of the master's people. Did you notice that in the text? That the faithful manager was entrusted over other servants. He was to take the food and to feed them, being people. He's not feeding the chairs or the dining room table or the dog. He's feeding fellow servants. 
The wise manager uses the pantries of the master to give servants their food in the proper time. In other words, those who want to be wise workers understand not only your responsibility to God, but you also understand your responsibility to others. And everything we're asked to give others is graciously given to you by your generous master. You see, this is far more than a parable here. This is actually a reaffirmation of the story of humanity that picks up on page one of your Bible in Genesis chapter one. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in charge of his garden, of his garden, <laughs> from, from Boston, uh, uh, placed them in charge of his garden. He made male and female in his image. Now, as 21st century readers, we often hear in his image and we think in his likeness. It looks like him, like your child looks like you. And that, that's true. There are aspects of our emotional life and certainly in our physicality as Jesus being now incarnate, that we are like him. But it's not just this likeness. In, in the culture of the day, to be made in the image of something was to herald kind of this political thing where there was one physical king who sat on one physical throne. And as you move further away from the kingdom, what that king would do is he would set up images of himself. And that image was meant to communicate his authority. It stood as a representation of what you were held to as a subject of that kingdom. God made humans in a perfect world to be representations of his generous will and his authority of his purpose and his intent. And everything, even if you look back at what God gave Adam and Eve in the garden to use was to be used towards that end. Look back at Genesis chapter one, verses 28 and 29, and notice the giving of a purpose and the giving of possessions for that purpose. We'll pick up in verse 28. And God blessed them, and them is Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's the call. There's the purpose. But here's the provision. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them as food, purpose and provision. We see in Genesis chapter two, as God kind of re-begins to tell us the story in more detail of what's happening in Genesis chapter one, that outside of the garden was desolate wilderness. It was barren. But inside the garden, that God created this perfect little enclave, God made Adam and Eve for a purpose. And we see that purpose spoken specifically to Adam in Genesis 2.15, where he says this, the Lord God took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Man was entrusted by God's authority to steward the riches of the garden and to work to expand that garden. That's right, fill and subdue. And how is he to do it? Well, two things, by babies and by boundaries. (laughs) Be fruitful and multiply and extend the garden. Desolation's on the outside, life is on the inside, expand the hedges, build more shade trees, do the work of expanding the kingdom. Why? So that more people might live in the perfect presence of a God as good and generous as this God. Jesus here as the true Adam, the Adam who would not fail as the perfect image of God now leaves us today with the same commands of purpose and provision. You see, Jesus never leaves his people 
without telling them what to do. That might sound harsh, but is there anything more anxiety producing than not knowing what to do in your life? This is the kindness of your savior to explain you. Everything in your life has been given to you by Jesus for the purpose of doing what? Of honoring him and serving others from the pantry of God's grace. Jesus then gives us an example of what this looks like back in verses 43 through 44. Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set you over all his possessions. Blessed is the servant who in hearing the master's purpose to steward, busies himself, becomes consumed with that work. This fits kind of Luke's view of discipleship. And if you remember back in Luke chapter six, we saw Jesus's call to discipleship. If you wonder what it means to follow Jesus, Jesus makes it clear in three simple steps. He says, the wise man is the one who comes to me. That's first and foremost. If you skip that, you miss everything. You got to come to Jesus in faith. Who hears my word. We submit ourselves to his will and his word. And then who does something with it. That is, in coming to Jesus, in hearing Jesus, our lives are changed by Jesus. That's what we see right here in this text, reaffirmed by Jesus. Jesus is making his point clear. J.C. Ryle, uh, an old English pastor, says this. He says, we learn in these verses the importance of doing in our Christianity. Now, legalism is bad. This is not earning or doing in order to be saved. J.C. Ryle goes on to say that this is not an example of how we get salvation, This is an example of those who have salvation ought to live. And he points this out. He says, it is not the servant who his master found wishing and professing, but the servant who is found doing that Jesus calls blessed. I'm not sure what you think of when you hear the word blessed. Maybe you think of hashtag blessed on Instagram. Maybe you think of some esoteric religious word, but the word simply means better, happier, Happy is the servant who's found doing this when Jesus comes back. To be doing this is not to be caught like, ah, shucks, I missed it. It's to be found, yes, this is it. And the reward when Jesus comes back is that you will be even more blessed, doubly blessed. He will give you, and what's the blessing if you look at those those verses? The blessing is not that he then says, all right, you're done glorifying me and serving others. But instead, what does he do? He puts you in charge of more. Jesus gives you more resources with which to serve him, even in eternity. Isn't that fantastic? Shouldn't that change how we view this life? That calls to serve God and serve others are not waging war against your joy, but they are actually the very promise of joy itself. Here in this moment, the wise and faithful manager is one who comes to the master, who knows his will, and serves everyone else out of the master's possession. Who is the reward of glory for, asks Peter? For this person, says Jesus, the one who lives for the master. And we could talk more about what that means later, but you must first understand here what Jesus is saying. If Jesus is your Lord, that's how Peter refers to him in verse 41, then Jesus is also your master. Actually, those two words are the exact same. If you come to Jesus for salvation as your Lord, he is your master. 
And it's helpful to think about that because no one is saved by Christ apart from the obligation of servanthood to Christ. And what is that obligation? Blessing, joy, it's work, but it's beautiful, wonderful work. This, submitting your whole life in service to the master's house and in service of the master's people is what you were made for. This is the purpose of all things. Wasn't it so great? Did you guys live life this past week? You you guys did? Did you find it was hard? It was difficult? There are times that were burdensome, anxiety-producing, weakness-inducing. Did you notice the very first word we all corporately sang together when we came in here? I had a week where I felt the weight of it. And what was our first word together? I don't remember the song. What did we open with, Johnny? Praise to the Lord. Guess what the first word of that is? Praise. Man, the very first utterance of our breath together as God's corporate people is praise. As it empties your lung, it fills our soul because this is what we were made for. Praise. We praise God. And to not do this is not only to miss out on the existential satisfaction of joy. It's to fall into sin and have the moral obligation follow you. This is the point Jesus makes, secondly, where we see the servant's perversion pick up in verses 45 through 48. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So here what we see first and foremost is contrast, right? We might have all sorts of questions on these levels of punishment here, but what's clear is these three are clearly different than the first faithful servant. The faithful servant was found doing. Moral of the story, if you worry about which of those three you are, do the opposite. Be one who's found doing the master's word. But here we get a glimpse for our own warning into the servant, first and foremost, who in the end is found unfaithful. He's not the faithful and wise servant, but instead he's the abusive servant, perverting and distorting all the things the master left for him. And pay close attention to how this whole slide started back in verse 45. Did you notice what he did? He started talking to his own heart. He noticed the master's delay, and then he said, my master is delayed in coming. Didn't we already see this earlier on, even in Luke, with the rich fool who, when left to his own devices, began to speak to his soul? Soul. Didn't we see this in the Garden of Eden? When Adam and Eve were trusted with purpose and provision and the serpent crept in and what did it do? It began to speak to their hearts saying, did God really say? We talk a lot about preaching the gospel to yourself at this church, reminding yourself daily of the implications of what Jesus has done to save us. And here's an example of why. Because if left on our own, you'll start preaching some pretty dumb stuff to yourself. Just this week, I went and met Trevor as we were preparing for our Philippians Bible study. And I was downtown uh, near downtown, and it was street cleaning day. And they had these signs up. They said, street cleaning, Tuesday morning, cars will be towed. And I looked, 
and my street had been scrubbed. It was all wet. There were some leaves there, not much. And there were no cars parked there, but three. It was the easiest place to park. And I said to my soul, the street cleaning has happened. The sign is there, but I'm all right. There's a couple other cars here. I can get away with it. And so I parked so boldly. I was in that coffee shop for one hour and I returned to the rapture. The car was gone. And I realized in that moment, and I told Trevor, I'm like, that might show up in Sunday's sermon. Because the sign was there. And what do we do? We begin to look at everything else and say, but with everything else in my life, do I really need to listen to this? Do I need to heed this warning? Or does it apply to everyone except for me? You see, the less commitment we exert to our words and wishes of our master, the easier and easier it is to view life through the lens of ourselves and our experience and not our savior and his gracious word. This is why the author of Hebrews says, to exhort one another daily as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As believers, we need to remind ourselves that though Jesus has left us in his body, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he has not left us without his voice. He speaks to us through his word. He works in us through his spirit. And moreover, when we come to places like this, we are reminded all the more that there are faithful master servants around us who are reminding us of the master's will, who point to that sign and say, it's still up. You probably shouldn't do that. Don't park there, dummy. Our marching orders have not grown quiet as we await the Lord's return. But here this servant looks at the delay. He reads the sign and his implication is this. It's safe for me to do otherwise. And what does he begin to do? Instead of serving others and stewarding the master's provision, he strikes others and stuffs himself with the master's pantry. What's the shift that happens? He stops seeing everything in his life as belonging to Jesus, to be used for the glory of Jesus, and instead starts seeing all that he has as belonging to him and being used in service to his own self. When you lose the purpose of God in your life, everything crumbles. And maybe you don't have the realization that you've lost God's purpose, but maybe you have the realization in your life of crumbling, that everything seems difficult, out of place, and even at the best, fearful. It becomes increasingly hard for us to love others if we miss that purpose. Because apart from the good news of the gospel of grace, you will inevitably view people in your life as tools or as threats. You see, if it's only grace, grace being the gift of Jesus and not anything else in this world that satisfies us, we innately have two choices in life. The first choice is that we see it. We hear the message of grace and we take Jesus. We tap his infinite well of mercy and therefore we're generous with everyone and everything in our lives. Why? Because we're already satisfied. Because there's an endless fount opened up for us in Christ and an infinite treasure held out for us in heaven. The second option is we refuse to see that Jesus alone is sufficient and we begin to hoard our own treasures, and steal from others because we fear that which we will inevitably, certainly, and woefully lose in the end. When we live for the glory of self, make no mistake, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. We see a glimpse of this. Jesus gives three categories of unfaithful servants, and the commonality of each of these servants is their relationship to the revealed will of the master. The first servant is the malicious servant who is so arrogant and hardened that he knows the will of his master, 
but he goes out of his way to do the exact opposite. And the master comes back, he will be found in direct rebellion. He will be cut in pieces and thrown out with the unfaithful. He is no servant at all. There is no reward for him. The second servant knows the master's will and doesn't do the opposite like the first. But instead, what does it tell us? It tells us that he does not ready himself. He does not obey it. He knows it. He doesn't actively work against it. He's not out preaching a false gospel. He's not calling people to worship sex and money. He maybe even got along really well with these other servants. But what's the thing that happens at the end? He too is held responsible for his response in relationship to the master's will. And he is punished. There's no reward for him. Then there's the third servant. This servant wasn't told by others the master's will. He was in a sort of blissful ignorance. But because of that as well, he was supposed to know what to do. And he didn't do it. And he too was punished. For him, there was no reward, even though his punishment was less than the other two. And what is Jesus showing us in these three servants? He's showing us that all sin is rebellion, whether you know it or not. But more than that, he's saying if those who don't know the master's will and don't do it and are therefore found guilty and still punished, how much more is the punishment reserved for those who hear his word and do nothing with it? And how much more for those who hear his word and actively do the opposite of it? Everyone's liable to judgment. There is no excuse. I am liable, you're liable, your mom is liable, your great aunt is liable, your favorite comedian is liable. Everyone's liable to judgment. They live in the master's house. They have the master's grace. They have his food. Therefore, there is an obligation And Jesus stands here and lands it in a staggering summary of the weight of this in his final point. And here we see our last point, a serious warning. A serious warning. Look at Luke 12, 48b. That's the second part of 48. Uh, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What's Jesus' point here? Be warned. Everyone is meant and made. That is, everyone is given purpose and provision to know and to serve the master. Everyone will be held to account. Judgment is universal, but woe to those who know more. Woe to those who sit here today and who hear this, but who fail to have a preoccupation and consuming vision for the master's will in their life. In these three servants, there are three levels of warning that I think are practical to all of us at varying degrees. And in closing, I want to walk through those. And we're going to see first a warning to the shepherds, then a warning to sheep, and lastly, a warning to servants. First, shepherds. This text is a warning to elders who are in pastoral ministry and those who aspire to pastoral ministry. We have an elder meeting after this today. And brother elders, notice the weight that Jesus gives to our ministry. Peter understood that Jesus was talking to him. His question was not, is this for us or others? If you notice that back in verse 41, his question is what? Is this for us or for everyone? He understood these words were meant for him. Why? Because he was one of the 12 apostles. He was especially commissioned by God for a unique role in the church. So too elders, though not apostles, have been set apart as shepherds of a flock. They've been affirmed publicly by the congregation for our knowledge of the gospel, our ability to keep it, 
to live lives typified by holiness and repentance, to protect sound doctrine and to preach it, we as elders will be judged more severely if we neglect the purpose of Christ and use our position and platform in service of self. This is not a modern problem. This started in the garden, and it's actually something that in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel rebukes through the word of the Lord. Listen to how this is spoken of in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. See, isn't it always, he's getting at the heart there. We're often the one that says, this doesn't apply to me. But what does he say here? Say it to the shepherds. What's God say? No, 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 pay attention. Like, make sure the shepherds know it's for them. That you're not exempt from this. Thus says the Lord God, ah, the shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. What is the, the wicked servant rebuked for? Not feeding the sheep. And here it is. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not have bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Now remember, who asked the question, Bible study question, who asked this question to Jesus in Luke 12? Peter. Peter asked this question. Peter got this answer. After Jesus, the true shepherd par excellence, showed up on the scene and ascended to heaven, the problem didn't go away. But Peter, the same Peter who asked this question, has a word for pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5. And hear it. Do you hear Jesus' parable echoing in Peter's ear here? 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge and being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This text in Luke shaped Peter's ministry in the church. Richard Baxter wrote in the years following the Reformation, calling pastors to not sit presumptuously in their study while souls were perishing in their pews. Andrew Fuller, a century later, warned of pastors who engaged in what he called as, quote, spiritual gossip. That is, baptized talk and action among the church, which seems to placate people with platitudes and easy words, while having zero urgency to call others to live for the will of God in Jesus Christ. In our cultural moment, we live in one where spiritual abuse is often the first idea associated with the church. There's lots of, quote, church hurt out there. And some of this is due to the fact that many of us don't have good Christology. Some of us have a lot of church hurt because we think that pastors are Christ. But much of this is due to the fact that pastors are like you, human. Pastors are just sheep in shepherd's clothing. Even the best pastor is simply a sheep, just as the best manager in this text is still a servant. No pastor can pastor perfectly. That's why Ezekiel closes his message with this in Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12. Thus says the Lord God, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. 
As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that they have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Pastors must own their charge by living in a constant reality that all we have belongs to the chief shepherd and we are not him. That we are under shepherds, broken, burdened, but purposed and held to account. But Jesus doesn't show such aggression here in this passage to those who are involuntarily limited as shepherds, just mere humans. But instead he's warning against the willfully negligent and abusive managers. This passage isn't about humble sheep in shepherd's clothing. It's about malicious wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves that tear, that maim, that destroy for their own selfish end. And I want you to hear in this text, because our world needs to see it, that no one is more disgusted, enraged, and repulsed by this perversion than Jesus himself. I dare you, I was thinking of it this morning, find a more visceral, statement of condemnation in the whole New Testament than this. We see the ones will be thrown out in the fire that burns endlessly with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what does Jesus say to this disgusting perversion? I will cut you in pieces and cast you out with the unfaithful. No one bemoans abuse to the church like Christ, the bridegroom. But what this passage also reminds us is that abuse does not negate proper use. When a manager acts this way, he is to be rebuked and he is to be condemned apart from his repentance. But just because one shepherd acts in such a way does not mean that shepherds are the problem. You see, it's only, the only way we know what's abusive is because we know what's proper and good. No one attacks you with an ice pack. That would be out of place. Why? Not because it's not hard and can't do damage but because we've seen an ice pack used to heal and to help. Remember that shepherds are God's gift to the church when they do as Jesus called them, to steward the household of God and feed servants at the proper time. May we as a church, you hold responsibility for appointing the elders among you. May we as a church exemplify relationships of mutual care, mercy, and ministry. Shepherds are to be preoccupied with Christ-exalting, people-serving ministry. It's a warning to the shepherds. But this passage also applies broadly to sheep. If you're a Christian in here, if you're simply a sheep and not a shepherd, this is to consume you as well. This is why Jesus doesn't answer Peter's question with clarity in a narrow way. He broadens it. The call to be responsible for the household of Jesus and to serve fellow servants is a universal call to all Christians. Look at how the Bible speaks of this. We have the Ephesians 4.12 bookstore. Why is it called the 4.12 bookstore? Let's read Ephesians 4.12. Paul's talking about his ministry. He's saying to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is Christian saints, not Catholic saints, not these capital S super Christians, to the ordinary saints. To the only way the Bible talks about saints. That's anyone who is made saintly, holy by Jesus Christ to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of of Christ. Consider again 1 Corinthians 4.1 where Paul says this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. We are made ministers, stewards of the gospel, saints meant to serve saints. Peter, right before he charges the shepherds in 1 Peter 5, speaks to the whole church in 1 Peter 2 and he calls them a holy priesthood. 
That is a people who take the grace God has provided them and serve others out of that provision as well. Jesus calls the whole church in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, even the hard ones, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that is commanded. There we see it again. What's the purpose? To represent not only the master, but the master's will. So you too are a servant commissioned to call others into alignment with the master. We want people not simply to know Jesus, for even the demons do that, but we want people to follow Jesus. Now you might say, hold on a minute, I just figured this thing out. I haven't been to seminary. I haven't read a theology book. I have no idea what double imputation means. What am I to do here? When God appeared to Moses, Moses said the same thing. Do you remember that? We read that about a month ago in our Bible reading plan. He said, God, do you know who I am? He said, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. You've probably made a mistake. I'm not the guy to do this. But do you remember what God said to him in Exodus 4? He said, I know who you are. Do you know who I am? I'm the God who made your tongue. And I'm the God who's calling you to do this. I'm the one who's going to give you what you need to do this. Everything we have been given, we have been given by the master for the purpose of the master. To disparage your gifting in serving God is to disparage the one who's given you the gift. To disparage what God has given you to serve is to disparage the gospel through which he gives it. Have you been saved? Have you been converted by faith in Jesus Christ? Do you realize the weight of your sins and how Christ in Christ alone is a sufficient sacrifice for it? Have you received mercy? If you have, look at what Paul says of you in 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Have you received mercy? Then what comes with it? Ministry, serving. Jesus saved you and set you over his creation so that you might serve others with the very thing that saved you. You don't have to invent it. You just give it. You're called to be a faithful manager and to help others live in accord to this. And you know what? Sometimes it's yucky. Sometimes it's tricky. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we find ourselves like the second servant and we just don't want to do it. It seems easier. So you've got a brother or sister in your community group. You see them acting in a way that's not just a one-time thing, but this pattern of this seems out of line with the master's will. And what do we say? We say, if I do that, it's going to get weird between us. It's going to be really awkward. It's going to be a weird coffee date. I'm not typically good with people anyway. This seems a little more difficult. And we don't do it to spare the shame of it. But this text shows that that shame's coming. One day that servant, whether they know it or not, they're going to have to answer for it. And one day you who knew what to do and didn't do it, you're going to have to tell God why you didn't. James 4, 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. We need wisdom to walk this path, but we have a wise shepherd. Who is he describing? But the wise and faithful manager. The same James who says that James 4, 17 says earlier on, James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives abundantly and without reproach. We need grace and truth. We need wisdom and warning, but Jesus has given it to us. And we labor for that because judgment is coming. This is where I want to close this by addressing the last warning today. That is the servants. 
The way Jesus sets up this parable is that whether you're in here today and you think you know Jesus, whether you're in here today and you're willingly opposing Jesus, or whether you're still trying to make sense of who Jesus is, you find yourself as a servant in this passage. Remember, in this household, there are both faithful and wise servants, and there are unfaithful servants. In other words, Jesus is not simply talking about the church here. He's talking about the world. All humanity is indebted to serve the master who made them, and they're to do so for their joy. We were made to bear the image of God, to steward his gifts, to help others serve him. That's the blessed life. That's human reality. He has created you. He sustains you with rains and grains. You are obligated to not do it is sin. The question for you is not, are you a servant, but are you an unfaithful one? Are you a blessed one or are you a condemned one? To be a faithful servant, you've got to know the master. You've got to come to him. By sitting here today, if you hear this, there are no third servants. Everyone has heard. You know what the Lord has for you. You were without excuse, even in knowing, but now you were without excuse in your hearing. God asks you to come to him through the master, to seek forgiveness through Jesus as Lord by realizing that he died for your sins and that in him and him alone, we have forgiveness and salvation. But then when we know him, We prove our salvation by working for him. Come to him being woken out of the reality of judgment, but serve him and submit him out of a zeal for the reward of that service, the prize of serving Jesus. You might have a track record of neglect in your life, but Jesus has a greater track record of mercy. Paul spent much of his life, not as the third servant or as the second servant, but if you remember, as the first servant, one who not metaphorically abused servants, the one who in all reality killed Christians. That seems like a big weight to get out of. But look at what he talks about. You can come study this with us this Tuesday at 1230, Philippians 3, verses 13 through 15. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Brothers and sisters who have shame, who have guilt, who have pain in your life, there is a way to forget, but it's only through the cross. It's only Jesus who not only takes away the condemnation of your sin, but who has promised to bear the weight, the shame, and the guilt of it. We cannot forget, but by the blood of Christ. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Let those who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, what's he saying in that last point? He says, if you're a Christian, if you believe in the gospel, it pushes you to service. You can't believe in God and not be corrected by God on this. This is the way. There is more to be gained in the service of Christ than we can gain anywhere else. And if you are here this morning, you are now the second servant. And the obligation calls and says, what are you going to do? You know his will. So come, come by grace and work with gratitude. Christ has called and we must go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this room are faithful and wise managers who first and foremost, before they ever put their hand to the plow, put their tongue to repentance, who come to you in faith and confess that no amount of good labor inside the house can do anything, but it takes the master laying down his life for his servants. But then having seen that, Lord, 
having understood ourselves in the blood of Jesus, make us a church faithful to work for your glory. Lord, I pray that those in here who hear this will not have hearts hardened to condemnation, but hearts softened to repentance, faith, and a reward. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.